This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And of course, we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. No place in the world eliciting a more polarizing opinion about the handling of the pandemic than Sweden. Some health experts say Sweden did it all wrong by not implementing a, a real lockdown. Others say Sweden's a model of what should have been happening all along. So who's right? Dogs, they're sniffing out the virus in Finland. We'll explain how that exactly works. We'll also look at whether politics is playing a bigger role than necessary when it comes to public health. And hope is growing that lawmakers in Washington can pass another stimulus bill. Let's start with Sweden. Many countries in Europe seeing increases in cases. Sweden has one of the lowest rates of daily new cases. Dr. Eric Fagelding is an epidemiologist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. A doctor, we talked to an expert in Sweden months ago who said basically in two years, everybody's going to have the same stats. So we did it the right way. Is he right? He is absolutely wrong. And there's and that is the worst right-wing propaganda circulating through the Internet. It is this theory that you're exposing right now is, belongs in the, the, the dirty tricks um, in, of right-wing propaganda. That's what Scott Atlas has been trying to push. She says, oh, kids, kids are immune, just go for herd immunity. You know, the latest study actually says that less than 10% of people have been infected. And herd immunity, to actually get herd immunity, you need at least 60%. 70 or 80 for optimal herd immunity. And, and by the way, the herd immunity is a scientific term only because it's used for vaccines. As in, if you vaccinate 80, 90, 95% of people, the herd immunity will protect the rest who aren't vaccinated. But again, it's a, it's a vaccine-based epidemiology phenomenon. It's never something you're supposed to plow through and let the, let the, like, uh, let the forest burn. And you're basically saying, let's burn four out of five trees to save the remaining one. And it's, it's terrible. And right now, Sweden, actually, you know, they have currently a low rate, but they're actually going up again. And they're actually going into lockdowns again. And their economy is no better than any of their Nordic neighbors. So altogether, it is not a good strategy. And it, it really is not scientific at all. Did they just delay the inevitable or have it move through at a different pace? And what's different about Sweden that maybe not all of us understand? A lot of people actually live alone in Sweden more than other countries or in very small households, I guess. And they did do some things like they closed the bars and the population more or less stayed home sometimes. They didn't go out all the time like you would totally normally, right? Well, yes. Sweden, you know, they didn't do everything like... um you know, they didn't like. It wasn't completely lackadaisical. Uh, but the thing is, like, they still were not doing what they should have uh, compared to its Nordic neighbors. Sweden and Norway, by the way, used to be uh, the same country until they split. And and also, Sweden should never compare to the U.S. because Sweden has universal health care. So the best comparison Sweden is with the Nordic neighbors. And the Nordic neighbors had full lockdowns. And you know, if you look at the cumulative deaths, cumulative cases. Sweden is five to six times total deaths higher than its all of its neighbors. And its economy, its GDP is no better than any Nordic neighbors. So Sweden paid a high price without the economic gain either. And right now, just last week, Sweden has, uh, Stockholm has gone into lockdowns and reclosings and everything. So to say that Sweden's success is just 
completely nonsense because it is it really is a right wing propaganda that you're hearing. And there's no epidemiologist, zero, who endorses um herd immunity approach as like a infection control for the coronavirus. But when it comes to controlling the virus, isn't the only model that actually works, ironically, the one that China did? Well, China did a very, very aggressive. And China, what it did was, you know, the, the, its kind of lockdown is not inducible anywhere in the West. Basically, China scanned everyone's cell phone in the whole country. And if you lose your cell phone ever touched Wuhan cell phone tower, you would be a lot of kind of quarantine and you would actually be separated from your family too as well. Um, and also, by the way, it's not just China with success. Taiwan uh, also had a success. They, uh, they also, they, for example, had 7,000 hotel rooms ready to quarantine people away from their families so that they don't infect the families because most families are infected within each, each other. So if one person has it, the whole family gets it oftentimes. And, you know, all these kind of things with contact tracing, we have very little of that here. Um, and also a lot of the Asian countries took, uh, they assumed it was aerosol transmission from the beginning. And they took precaution that it was an aerosol. But we did not recognize that it was an aerosol until later this summer. And now, even, even then, um, lately, the aerosol, CDC declared it was aerosol and then quickly was muzzled and retracted. Uh, earlier last week. So altogether, we have not responded in the right way. And most of the Western Europe didn't respond and assume it's aerosol either. In fact, right now, most of the cases are rising because they're not wearing masks in schools. Many of the countries right now are not masking, and hence their cases are soaring right now in Europe. Dr. Eric Fagelding, epidemiologist, a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. We know you uh, listen to the podcast regularly, so we know you might remember a story we did at the end of one of our recent podcasts about dogs that can sniff out the virus in people's sweat. Those dogs are working right now at the Helsinki airport in Finland. And we found more dogs. Dr. Michelle Mon, senior scientist and dog handler with the Exit Corporation. She's supporting the U.S. Army's uh, Chemical Biological Center for Virus Detection. So, Dr., How'd you come up with the idea to use dogs, other than their smellers are, are really, really fine-tuned? So the dogs are just excellent at detecting all sorts of different anomalies in their environment. And so they have these sophisticated sniffers, the, and they're very good at olfaction, so um, detecting all sorts of different, um, what we call VOCs, volatile organic compounds in their environment. And by harnessing different training techniques, we can train them to detect anything from explosives and narcotics, which we're used to in our sort of day-to-day lives in Homeland Security and law enforcement, to um, medical detection dogs that are detecting cancer and now COVID. And I guess people kind of understand a dog being capable of being trained to sniff out explosives. But what is it do we know that they're smelling that lights up in their brains, ah, COVID. So we don't know exactly what they're smelling yet. What we do know is that there is a signature odor that is different in patients that are infected with SARS-CoV-2 than in patients that are negative, so that patients that are not infected. And so the dogs are able to discern 
and distinguish between positive and negative patients. And so while we don't know exactly what the difference is by smell, the dogs do. And so what we do is exploit that difference and the dogs, um, when they're able to tell the difference, they're able to alert us to that difference through in, training. In practice, what does it look like? Do they just come up and sniff me or do I need to wipe my forehead or my hands and then they sniff that? Um, so it depends on how they're deployed. Right now in the study that we're conducting with the University of Pennsylvania Penn Vet Working Dog Center, the samples are brought to the dogs. And so we, our phase one study used urine and saliva, and now we're using human um, perspiration, sweat, body odor that is impregnated onto T-shirts, um, a swab, a gauze, something like that. Um, in the later phase, of the studies, um, they, the dogs could go directly up to the human and either have a sample taken from them or smell it on their clothing. What is the the time frame that uh, of infection that these dogs can detect uh, an infection by the coronavirus? Are, are these people who are uh, asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, uh, actively infected? What what are they able to pick out? Great question. So the dogs are able to find asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic presentations of the disease. By the time someone is symptomatic, typically five days post-infection, um, we don't really need the dogs to tell us that those people are infected, right? There's, there's other, other clinical signs that are indicative of, of infection or disease state. So the dogs are really able to identify the change in um, the human body odor or change in the, the human metabolome or volatilome, we call it, um, the, the change in odor that's produced by an infected human very early on in an infection. We don't know how early yet because that time study hasn't been done, but it is quite early. What's their hit rate? How accurate are they? Um, so they're 96% accurate. Um, or so that's the sensitivity and specificity is 99% so far. So I, I'm presuming that they would be most useful, uh, what, at airports to monitor people coming in or maybe going to another country. And if the dog reacts positive, then what's the next step? A, a person is given a, a rapid test? Yeah, so I, I see biosecurity just like physical security as a layered approach. And so the dogs are just one part of that layer um, or one layer within, you know, of the layers of layers. And so, um, you know, that would be in conjunction with um, fever checks and questionnaires and some of those rapid diagnostics that are available now. And so however um, a certain country wanted to employ that, they, they could do, um, that would be up to them. But I think actually the, the airport's one of the simpler ones. I think you could have a dog in a school and or a nursing home, and the dogs could then be sort of the resident sort of sentinel screeners in that, in that facility. And so instead of trying to test everyone every day and wait for sort of outbreaks to crop up and then spread before you start seeing symptoms, which is already too late, the dogs could be identifying people way more. Um, way faster than any of those other diagnostics. Before we let you go, what kind of dogs? Oh, we have um, we have mainly Labrador Retrievers, um, but we also have a beautiful Belgian Malinois in our study as well. So can so any, any, any dog, dog any do? dog from a working dog line? 
Really? Okay. Pretty cool. All right, Dr. Michelle Mon, thank you so much. Concerns growing that politics playing way too big of a role when it comes to public health during this pandemic. Many people worried that guidelines and recommendations are being changed because of it. How does the world of public health feel about this? Dr. Risa Jones, Department Chair of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the College of Public Health at Temple University. She talks to KYW's Matt Leon about the issue. You know, as a, as a researcher and a scientist, I'm driven by the evidence. And so it is disappointing to see that science is sometimes disregarded or the evidence from science is downplayed. You know, of course, there are times where we have to be cautious. And, you know, again, that gets back to transparency and being as forthright as possible about what we know and the limitations of what we know. But, you know, it's it's very difficult to have national guidelines or recommendations for public health safety and then have people in leadership who could be modeling behavior, um, perhaps not wearing masks or following all of the national public health guidelines. We talk, I've heard a lot of people talk about some things on the CDC website and then it's not on the CDC website. How much of the changing guidelines and recommendations do you feel is typical or atypical, maybe pushed by politics? And how much of it is, to be fair, just changing of what we understand about the virus, because this is a very fluid situation. Right. That, that's a really good point. You know, it is difficult because it is a novel coronavirus. So things have been evolving as we learn more. Um, so over the course of the, you know, since the, the pandemic has been announced in the United States, different information has been posted. I think that Unfortunately, with COVID-19, it's been politicized um, more so than other infectious diseases in recent past, like H1N1 um, wasn't politicized to this point. Zika also was not. And so there was a focus on the facts and everybody rallied around doing what was needed to protect people's health. The CDC has been the premier trusted source for public health information and preparedness for decades. And it is disheartening um, that they put up information and they they took it down. You know, I've I've read a lot of op eds um, recently about pressure from you know administration to change things. What I can tell you is, back in April, a report that was put out by the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning, and Engineers. It was ventilation guidelines, and in that report from April, they clearly gave guidance on COVID-19 and talked about the fact that airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2 was likely and that ventilation and air conditioning systems needed to be in operation to reduce those airborne exposures. So, you know, what the CDC posted and then took down is the same kind of information that scientists um, and people in the engineering field have been talking about for months. It also is aligned with what WHO has posted about ventilation and wanting to make sure that ventilation is as robust as possible, given possible aerosolation. How concerning is it? Because I think it's one thing for obviously you're so immersed in the public health world, but and then someone like me who follows it, talks about it every day, reads a lot about it. 
But how concerning is it, you know, people that don't have time to, to read a lot of articles that just kind of are following it the best they can, they hear one thing on Monday, they hear a different thing on Thursday. How much more difficult does that make, you know, even for good people that want to try to follow the rules? Because I know a couple of people who I talk to and they just kind of throw their hands up and they're like, well, I'll, I'll wear the mask, but I don't know what, what I really should be doing. Yeah, and, you know, this is – this is something that is a, a difficulty, regardless of the health-related outcome. You know, people will see in the paper one day that fatty red meat causes X cancer. And then, you know, a week later, they might see that red meat actually decreases the risk of, um, of certain cancers. Or, you know, there, there's conflicting information. I think that there are definitely trusted sources historically for good science and evidence. The um, National Academy of Science has been doing a COVID series. That would be a good source of information. Also, the American Public Health Association has good information that can be trusted on the science. And that's, you know, distilled and, and available. And the CDC, while they pulled, they posted information and pulled that information again, they really truly are should be a, a trusted source for public health information for us. There are some different studies that are happening right now. Um, there have been some early publications, actually, of studies that were looking at how we can most effectively communicate with the public, not just in terms of COVID-19, but in terms of vaccines. Temple recently got a grant. One of my colleagues in social behavioral sciences will be looking at communication for COVID-19. Um, so I, I think that Using some of those public health resources are, are really the best way to get information. Another stimulus deal for the American people could be reached soon. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary making a last-ditch effort to try to come to some kind of agreement. WBBM's Cisco Cotto got some insight from Diane Swank, Chief Economist at Grant Thornton, about what's needed to give the economy a boost. Well, it really needs to be multifaceted. First and foremost, we need to really manage this virus and the outbreak better, and that means much, much more testing and tracing so we can isolate cases as they occur very quickly and allow people to return to more normal economic activity, to congregate like we all want to congregate. So that means a big amount of money for testing and ramping up that testing and tracing effort. We also need money for individuals where um, they've now seen a lapse in their unemployment benefits and what little they could get out of an executive order have already dwindled and run out. Those people are having trouble, millions upon millions are now having trouble paying for simple things like food and shelter, the basics of food and shelter, food insecurity at a record high already. So we really need some extra supplements for people out there. You can split the difference. You don't have to go back up to the 600, but we do need some real money, additional money to support people that can't get recalled to jobs. And we really do need to see some help for firms that are, are now seeing small business closures permanent. The number of permanent business closures is accelerating. Those PPP loans um, ran out and we need we have funds that have already been approved, $140 billion, and they've not they um, expired August 8th. They just need to be reallocated and changed so that businesses can stay afloat through these COVID waters. And then lastly, we really need transfers to the states. Every state in the country has been hit by the blow to everything from retail sales tax to income tax revenues that um, they take in. And those money is not that money is not there anymore, and that's going to mean more cuts 
gets to jobs going forward unless we fill some of those holes. Talk about the jobs number, 749,000 hired, which was more than expected. That was on the ADP report, not the official jobs data. They were really dominated by large firms and um, small firms not adding as much, and that's where we had seen early on some recall of workers in smaller firms. Also in manufacturing, big callback in manufacturing jobs. That's an area where we've only gotten back up to 77% capacity in the manufacturing sector, very uneven as supply chain problems continue to disrupt manufacturing. Also, demand was um, coming back, but not not as strong as it could have been. Construction, another big area of increases out there. There were some leisure and hospitality jobs that came back. It is important to note that um, leisure and hospitality, we tend to lose jobs this time of year in leisure and hospitality, and that makes the seasonal adjustment of the data a little suspect out there because that's something that um, we've earlier cuts. Um, we're still 4.4 million jobs in the hole in leisure and hospitality, so earlier cuts could make it look like a sort of false positive in the month of September. The other issue was state and local level. Um, we did see some education and healthcare jobs came back, but they weren't in education. They were actually almost all in healthcare. We do need those healthcare jobs, but we also need those education jobs back. And kids doing hybrid or online education means fewer support staff is being called back than they once were. Always good insight from Diane Swank. Lots of people have had a corona test. It's not the most comfortable thing i've had a couple of them yeah i lucked out last time with just the uh, mouth swab i, I did, didn't have I did to go one for of the nose i did yeah. one of them but i did the nose one too yeah. and, and what that one is of course is someone <laughs> sticks a swab they take the swab and they just stick it all the way to your brain deep into your nose yes and it's like really deep but now researchers in japan say a simple saliva test for covid19 is just as reliable as the swab test the study concluded that saliva testing was about 90% accurate in identifying positive cases. Now, that's the performance rate almost exactly on par with nasal swab sampling. Ahead of the Olympics next year in Tokyo, the Japanese government is considering setting up a system to make screening as easy as dropping off saliva samples at the local drugstore. Please take a swab and drop it in the bucket. Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And remember, don't spit on the sidewalk.